I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. In a previous episode, you may recall former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu invoking the name of Dr. Ibram X. Kendi and talking about the good and evil in our nation's fraught racial dynamic. The argument is that one doesn't triumph over the other. The two coexist. And right now, the evil of white supremacy is on the march. Well, in this episode, I drill down on this with Dr. Kendi, director of Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of How to Be Anti-Racist. And I get Dr. Kendi to explain his contention that racist policies are the issue, not racist people. When a person is supporting a racist policy, they're being racist. When they're expressing a racist idea, they're being racist. But that doesn't mean they are essentially racist. Dr. Kendi walks us through this logic and fully explains why, as he says, the problem isn't bad people. The problem is bad policies. Listen to it all right now. Dr. Kendi, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's always great, Jonathan, to be on. So the last time you were here, you were on with your co-editor um, of 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. But I've asked you here solo today because your name was invoked in my interview with uh, former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu. And I thought, you know what? This is a good opportunity to, to have Dr. Kendi on. Here's what Mitch said. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi has said something that I had not really thought much about. He basically has posited the theory that we've always moved side by side, good with evil, and one overtakes the other from time to time, and both are always present. And then Mitch goes on to say, and I don't know whether, I don't know that he's more right than wrong, but it sure feels like Right now, the forces of what I would describe as white nationalism, white supremacy, this notion that somehow whiteness is essential to the future of America for some people who consider themselves to be patriots is a very dangerous idea. And this this idea of, you know, good and evil simultaneously basically coexisting and one overtaking the other, I would love for you to, since he's attributing it to you, Talk more about that. Where does that come from? And how does it manifest itself, good and evil? Well, I mean, I I have written about the sort of dueling racial history of this country, a a history of of, of racial progress, and and even a history of racist progress. I, I I, I wouldn't necessarily call it the clash between good and evil, because I, I think it's it's important for us to, to complicate it even further in that, you know, you 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 have uh, people who express sort of or may be a part of both uh, forces at different times or uh, or you have people who have good intentions, but, you know, it has, you know, a difficult outcome. And, and, and so I don't know if we can essentially call that good or evil. Um, to give an example, I mean, all the good intentions around the efforts to, to desegregate schools, which of course were incredibly important, um, but some of the difficult outgrowths of that was a lot of Black teachers and administrators, you know, lost their jobs. Um, 
And, and so, you know, oftentimes, even with forms of racial progress, there, uh, there are elements of uh, that may not necessarily be considered good. Um, but I think this duality that I think Mitch is speaking to, and I think you're asking about, that's what I've really tried to show that, uh, and, and I think it's important for us to really reflect on and, and recognize that duality. And the reason why it's important is because if you believe that the nation is progressing racially and quote, things are getting better and they are, they're they're just gonna continue to get better almost, almost by nature or by the nature of this nation, then when you succeed, you're not necessarily going to realize that the, the, the ball is going to come back right at the, the, you know, the other team is going to take the ball out the, the basket and come by, come back right, right at you. You know, I'm of course using a, a, a basketball analogy since the NBA finals just wrapped up, but, <laughs> but you're not going to be on guard for the progression of racism. And we're seeing that progression certainly as Mitch stated right now. You know, when he said that, I was thinking of what you wrote in your book, how to be an anti-racist. Um, and it's the the chapter on dueling consciousness. Um, there's assimilationist, segregationist, and then anti-racist. So take each one. Start with assimilationist. So an assimilationist largely believes that, let's say if we're talking about Black people or Native or Asian people or a particular racial group, is inferior as a result of nurture. And, and that nurture is either the result of their cultures, their behaviors, or even oppression itself. Uh, you know, some abolitionists made the case that slavery was making Black people into brutes. And, and so we contrast that perspective with the segregationist perspective, which, which largely states that, let's say, Black people are inferior by nature. They're genetically inferior. Uh, they're permanently inferior. And that permanent inferiority is the cause of racial inequality, which is permanent. While an assimilationist will be like, no, 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 this is temporary. <laughs> you know, it's environmental. You know, we can fix these people and fix the environment. And, 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 and Black folks uh, champion the notion that, you know what, you can fix the environment. And of course, have rejected the idea that Black people too need to be fixed. And, and that's largely been the anti-racist position. Right. And that leads to the next thing, which I was going to ask you. And so then the anti-racist position, um, because I, um, you, you know, you, you make this argument and, and it's your argument. So jump in and correct me. But it's not that there are, are racist people. It's there are racist policies. And as a result of the racist policies, people become or are racist. Help me out here. Yeah, so I mean, if we take the current um, really wave of, 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 of GOP-inspired uh, voter suppression policies, you, you, you have GOP state legislators who are recognizing that the ideology and the demographics of, of their districts, you know, of their states, of their nation is, is turning away from them. And so out of political self-interest to get elected, to stay elected, they're supporting or instituting or defending uh, policies that make it harder for, for Black, Brown, and Indigenous people to vote, 
which are racist policies, despite what the Supreme Court may say, mm -hmm. uh, because they're leading to, to racial disparities. But then they have to justify those, those policies. And that justification becomes racist ideas or the idea that those voters in Philadelphia or Detroit or Atlanta or, 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 or Las Vegas or um, you know, other black or brown sort of places and spaces are corrupt or fraudulent. And that these suppression policies are, are, of course, about election security to secure the vote, which is the same idea that those who attacked Black voting after the Civil War used, that these Black voters were corrupt and fraudulent. And, 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 and the white, um, white legislators and even the Ku Klux Klan were saving the day, providing more security. And then people consume these ideas. They believe that you know, black and brown and indigenous voters are corrupting uh, their nation, are taking their nation away. And then they'll, they'll even storm the U.S. Capitol, sort of filled with that ignorance and that hate. So in other words, they're almost being made, they're, they're consuming these racist ideas uh, and being made to think that there's something wrong with, with these people as opposed to those policies. All the while, their elected officials are benefiting, uh, you know, from their uh directing racial violence towards towards people of color and 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 the idea about uh people and, and what I try to emphasize is is you have racist policies and racist ideas so when a person is supporting a racist policy they're being racist when they're expressing a racist idea they're being racist but that doesn't mean they are essentially racist and, and, and the reason why that's important is because in my work, I, I chronicled so many people who expressed racist and anti-racist ideas at different moments uh, mm -hmm. and, and who support racist and anti-racist policy. You have people today who support, let's say, universal health care, uh, uh, Medicare for all, which will eliminate disparities in uninsurance rates or underinsurance rates, which thereby makes it, you know, an anti-racist policy. But they're completely against, let's say, uh, efforts to eliminate the massive uh, funding disparity between predominantly white and predominantly black schools. Um, and so, what that means is when they're when they're opposing efforts to create equity in school funding, they're being racist. When they're supporting efforts to create equity in terms of uh, uninsurance rates or insurance rates, they're being anti-racist. And and what I love about this is that it sort of continues um, the conversation we've been having as a nation, but also the conversation I've been having on this podcast for a couple of years now is to try to get across to people that racism isn't, oh, there are really bad, evil people out there who say horrible things, they drop the N-word, they burn crosses, um, they do all sorts of horrible things, uh, paint the N-word on your, on your garage. But to get across to people that you know, racism is systemic. And not only is it a system, it's a system that is, can be invisible, to those who don't want it, who don't want to see it, um, or even invisible to those who don't even know what's there. I mean, there are there are a lot of quote unquote good people who might say the racist thing or do the racist thing, 
and not realize that what they're doing is part of a bigger system and a system that predates them, a system that's been here, well, I mean, you would argue, I think we would all argue at this point, since 1619. No, I'm happy you used the term invisible because I completely agree. And 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 I think, and, and what I've tried to, to, to show in my work, it's how it becomes and, and why it's invisible to so many people. No, I was going to say, and so why is it invisible to so many people? So let's say if you believe that, you know, Black people are, are dangerous, violent uh, criminals, uh, that they are just always just incredibly reckless with the police, and you hear about these disparities in which Black people are two or three times more likely to die at the hands of police, there's no there there. Of course, they're more likely to die at the hands of police. They're more violent. They're more dangerous. Mm. They don't listen to authority. Uh, all these, the problem is them. If, if you believe that, that Black workers are lazy, prefer welfare over work, are not qualified, don't want to get an education, then when you hear that Black people are twice as likely to be unemployed, you're not going to even, you're not going to be able to see the structures of racism that are causing that disparity. And and so racist ideas make the structures of racism invisible to people. And they convince people that they are the victims, (laughs) if anything, Mm -hmm. um, which is part of what's happening today. But, you know, to your point about invisibility, what's happened also in the last year, and if we want to extend this to last six years, is these structures of racism are becoming more and more visible to people. And they're becoming more and more visible to people, uh, I would argue, and tell me if you agree, of late, especially within the last couple of years, is because of the murder of George Floyd. And the fact that that was nine minutes and 29 seconds of watching someone being murdered. It took something that graphic, that disturbing, that violent, in order to get more people than before to see that that was wrong and then to understand how that could possibly happen and how the police almost, how Derek Chauvin almost got away with it. Yeah. I mean, it's there are certain... There are certain things we see that are undeniable. And uh, most of human life, most human phenomenons, there's blurred lines. (laughs) But there were no blurred lines, you know, in in, in the George uh, Floyd murder tape. None at all. And so one of the things we have have found since uh, May 25th, 2020, one of the, you know, sadly upsides of the demonstrations is that we saw more white people than I've ever seen in my lifetime at a at protests, not just in one city, in cities around the world, cities and towns around the world, protesting uh, the murder of George Floyd, expressing um, support for Black Lives Matter. We've seen that support wane over time, which I've guessed would not surprise you in the least. But I guess the question I'm getting to here is how do, is it even possible for 
for white people to sustain that level of support for what we're talking about here when the invisible the, that invisible system gives them every incentive to slide back into that old comfortable groove of just uh, that uh, I don't have to worry about that it is possible but it's it at the same time it's easy and it's hard um, and, 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 and I think what makes it hard, and the reason why I say it's easy, because it should be easy to, to see my skin color to be as irrelevant as, as the color of my jacket, right? And that we're really pretty much all the same. Uh, but then again, it's extremely hard for people uh, to, to, to see their brother when they, when they see George Floyd, to see their daughter when they imagine what happened to Breonna Taylor. And, and, it, and what makes it harder is when you have a concerted effort among people who project themselves as pro-white or defenders of you or defenders of your family who are, who are telling you uh, that these Black Lives Matter demonstrators, that cancel culture, that the 1619 Project, uh, that anti-racist education, that critical race theory is anti-white. And, and you don't know that that's a white supremacist talking point, that for years, white supremacists have been saying anti-racist is, is cold for anti-white and it's trying to, you know, uh, initiate the genocide of, of, of white people. You don't know that the ways in which your family actually is being negatively impacted by voter suppression policies, how it's going to be harder for you to vote, how it's going to suppress the vote of white liberals who partner with people of color you know, politically, you, you can't. And, and so for all you know, wow, this is against America. This is against me. Uh, these people are against me. I actually believe that they're saying that all white people are evil when indeed that's not what people are saying. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it just makes it harder for folks. Uh, but I think it's important for people to just not be, to not be fooled and hoodwinked. Um, and, and to not be sort of, uh, to not allow this disinformation to sort of cloud their judgment that the problem is this visible structural racism, you know, as opposed to something else. So then how, so then how can they do that? If they're swimming in this, in this soup, swimming in this water, how, like, how do they get to the point where they see that, the system that they that they are in is one that they have to push back against. It really depends on from what standpoint are they coming from, and and so I think you have some some white Americans who, you know, who who whether based on their upbringing or their religion uh, or their secular sort of philosophy, who want to do the right thing, who 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 want to. Uh, who want to support what's on the right side of history, who, who want to make a moral decision. And I think it's in, on you to thereby study, you know, what's the right thing? Is, is justice, is equity, is eliminating structural racism the right thing to do? But then there are other people and there are other white folks, just like non-white folks, who aren't necessarily making a moral decision. They're like, okay, what is in this for me? You know, what is what's best for me? Uh, and and I think it's important for for these people to ask the question like how have their 
elected officials actually helped them. Not how they've attacked people of color, <laughs> but how have they, in a very material sense, especially if they're not super rich, uh, how have they helped them? You know, how have they helped put food on the table? You know, how have they brought jobs, you know, back? How are they fighting for higher wages, you know, for you? How are they improving the environment so your kids can, 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 can drink, uh, uh, you know, cleaner water and, and breathe in cleaner air? These are the basic questions. And then I think when white folks start asking those questions, particularly about this generation of Republicans, I think they'll know the answer. You know, as you were saying that, I couldn't help but think of of uh, Dr. Jonathan Metzl's book, Dying of Whiteness, to your question about, you know, ask yourself, how have I benefited from these policies? And I was thinking of the example he, the example he uses of, you know, gun laws in Missouri, how the policies there are protect yourselves from the the black hordes that are coming to you know rob your house and you know terrorize your family here free access to guns basically but what en- ended up happening in Missouri is that being being a a white male turned you into a risk category for suicide because and gun suicide is the number one killer of white males in Missouri. And why is that? Because the gun laws are so lax. Folks bought guns and they're so they're because they're in this is Metzl's argument and you know suicide is um it's something of convenience. The gun is there, they use it and it's irreversible. It's not like taking pills, um which he also notes is everyone thinks that that is, you know, the way people kill themselves and it's not as successful as people think. And it's just a service to have that out there to show like this is how policies that you think are are helping you are actually doing the reverse. Exactly. And and even Jonathan, you know, in that in that chapter, even documented and compared uh, states that eliminated or reduced these gun safety sort of policies versus states that did not. <laughs> And you mm-hmm. saw this precipitous increase in the number of white males uh, committing suicide in the states that are dropping these gun control policies. But and that's the irony, Jonathan, is what what you're speaking to is these efforts to roll back these 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 gun safety policies were dog whistled as pro white, but ended up killing white people. <laughs> and and I think that's what's happening. That's lar- largely an, an allegory for for essentially what the Republican Party is doing today. Let's talk about where we are as a country today um, and as the, the director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. I'm just wondering right now, if you were giving a State of the Union address, how would you say the state of our union is when it comes to race, racism, um, our attention to it or our the ways we're addressing it or not? Or do you, and I should ask, do you think, as as Mitch Landrieu thinks, that we are at a very precarious moment in, in our nation as a result of all of this? We are in a very precarious sort of moment 
we essentially have many elected officials and, and prominent uh, people in, in critically influential positions who are pushing white supremacist policies and defending them with white supremacist talking points, completely in an almost unabashed sort of uh, way. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, policies and, and what they're advocating for are just extremely dangerous, right? Dangerous to democracy, dangerous to the environment, you know, dangerous and divisive. Uh, when you attack people as the problem, that's essentially divisive, right? As opposed to saying, you know, we're all equals. The problem isn't, you know, bad people. The problem is bad policies. Um, and, and that's what I've been largely encouraging us to, 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 to speak to, you know, based on the evidence that, you know, for, for us as, 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 as people to come together to, to realize that the source of, you know, of inequity and disparity is bad policy, you know, and not bad people. And to me, that's a unifying idea. It's not just an idea we can prove. <laughs> it's a unifying <laughs> idea. Well, I'm going to ask you this question. Um, Every year for the next four years, because I'll be shocked if you if you don't get a chance to meet with President Biden. But if you if you had a chance to meet with him about this moment, because he is somebody who is, it seems to me is very in tune with where we are, this conversation that we're having. What would you say to him about how he should be leading the country right now? on matters and issues of race. He appears to be headed towards a presidency that probably most resembles, if he gets some of the policies he wants passed, uh, an FDR, uh, than some of the other sort of presidents. And while some would say, that's great, you know, and certainly they were some incredible policies uh, that were passed, you know, during uh, the New Deal era. At the same time, you know, many of those policies were not extended to Black domestics, were not expended, right. expended to farmers. And so even though particularly Black Americans in the North were able to, or more middle-class Blacks were able to, to benefit from them. Uh, and then in order to do that, he... FDR essentially had to kowtow to uh, basically uh, Jim Crow segregationists, uh, which reinforced their power, which then had to, and then we had to, of course, wage a civil rights movement, uh, you know, in order to, to reconstruct sort of this country. And, and so, you know, I'm saying that, you know, I would sort of talk to him about that. And, and as a result, you know, civil rights activists recognize that FDR could have gone a different way. Uh, but it, that different way was much harder, hmm. you know, than, than the way that, that, that he took. And, and just like, uh, you know, what I think people are asking for today is both these universal programs that were benefit large numbers of people, as well as more targeted programs that will specifically help uh, particular groups, and in this case, racial groups, uh, who are on the lower end of disparity. So targeted efforts like, at the very least, removing the filibuster for voting sort of rights. Um, and, 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 and so I think it's, it, I would really just ask him, like, what type of president, you know, does he want to be? Um, 
because if he wants to be an FDR, then that means like we are doing as historians today, we are constantly critiquing uh, FDR about what he had, what he did not do, uh, and, and and the ways in which his policies led to uh, efforts or civil rights efforts. In other words, we had to uh, fight against the redlining. We had to fight against. Anyway, I think you understand what I'm saying. No, I, 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 this is you raise a, you raise a good point about historians constantly reassessing. Um, the, particularly presidents, reassessing their roles, reassessing the decisions that they made. And we are moving from, ah, FDR, great president, great policies, great ideas, to, ah, FDR, big policies, but look at the stuff he didn't do as in order to do the things that he did, which were exclusionary. Um, I've got to ask you, and I can't believe I've waited this long to ask you this. I should have asked you this at the beginning, but the country is in the middle of this what i this what i call a misguided conversation on quote unquote critical race theory how we got to into a debate over whether school children would be learning about a law school course is beyond me but as someone who is in the anti-racist space, who is a historian, um, who is in in this world, what do you make of this debate that we're in right now? And why are we having this debate the way we're having it? So I think the reason why we're having this, why this fiasco is is, is occurring is because I think what we talked about earlier, in, in which there's, there's a growing number of particularly white Americans uh, who are beginning to see structural racism. And, and what, what long for some of them was invisible is now becoming visible. And, and so I think this sort of constructed um, sort of controversy, the, 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 to me, the, one of the primary efforts is to put those folks back to sleep, uh, to, to make what's visible, invisible, again, which then will also cover up the efforts to <laughs> suppress votes. <laughs> mm-hmm. That the very people who are claiming they're about equality uh, and thereby against CRT, which they imagine is anti-white, uh, are also seeking to suppress the votes <laughs> and make it harder for people to vote. And I, I think that it is it is unfortunate because you know, critical race, and, and then I think critical race theory is a legal theory, right. certainly draws from history like every other sort of discipline, but it's, but it's a legal theory is being, has been transformed into an historical uh, discipline and then been used to say, we don't want that form of teaching history in our schools. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the irony, and I'm sure critical race theorists, are, you know, are just sort of striking their head when they hear the so-called critics of critical race theory defining critical race theory in a way that critical race theorists cannot even recognize. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine um, what they're like, like, huh, this is this is not even um, what what we're talking about. One last question for you. Um, you are in you are sometimes on this side of the microphone, you are the host 
of your own podcast, uh, Be Anti-Racist. How do you like it? It is. It is a new experience. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's, it certainly has, I, well, I, I enjoy certainly, you know, having conversations with, with different types of people who have sort of different forms of expertise and sort of, and, and learning from them. Uh, and in, in the way I would, you know, reading their articles or reading their books. And so to me, that's the, that's the most exciting part about it. But just the medium of podcasting itself is just so new to me. And so I feel like I'm, I'm learning as I'm doing. And, and that's always, you know, a tough climb. Yeah, it's not that tough. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. You're welcome, Jonathan, as always. Thank you. Before I go, let me introduce you to a new podcast from Washington Post Opinions. It's called Please Go On, hosted by Post columnist James Homan. Every Friday, James interviews someone who's written an insightful or important op-ed for The Post. A nice compliment to what we're doing here on Cape Up, Please Go On creates a space for guest authors to go deeper on what they've written. I know you'll like it. Check it out. You can find Please Go On with James Homan wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.